Welcome, friends, to our study of 1 Corinthians today and for the next several weeks. We're going to be in a very, very uh, interesting, significant uh, section of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And in these chapters, uh, Paul is going to be talking about gifts of the Spirit. Uh, th- these three chapters have... Uh, had a remarkable influence on the life of the Christian community around the world, uh, particularly in the last 150 or so years. Uh, these, this, these three chapters have uh, helped a lot of Christians around the world find a new way uh, to read the rest of the Bible. Uh, these are the chapters that deal with spiritual gifts. So we're going to be spending some significant time talking about spiritual gifts. Uh, To begin with, let me uh, just elucidate that spiritual gifts, as they're described by the Apostle Paul, as we have seen them in operation of the Christian community, are not just natural abilities. Uh, We all are born with natural abilities. Uh, the spiritual gifts are not just heightened natural abilities. Uh, we have that too. The spiritual gifts, and we'll see this from the text that we'll be studying, uh, they are specific gifts from God to individuals in the body of Christ that are manifestations of the Holy Spirit uh, for the good of the whole body or the edifying of the whole body. Uh, In a lot of ways, the last 150 years or so of the Christian uh, church's history will be written one day uh, about a recovery of spiritual gifts uh, to to a uh, great place of prominence in these last 150-so years. Let me give a little bit of history where we are in the Christian church right now and where we've been um, traveling from throughout our history. The spiritual gifts that we will hear Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians have always been in operation to a greater or lesser extent in the body of Christ. Um, But uh, there have been times in the body of Christ where they uh, almost seem to have died out. There never has been a time when they have died out, but there's been a time when uh, people thought they died out because they were so much not in evidence. Uh, And what that did was it gave a rise to a particular type of theology called cessationism uh, in the body of Christ that uh, just doctrinally decided that uh, these gifts died out at some point in the life of the Christian community. We see them there in the book of Acts, Uh, but some people begin to um, assume, and then they begin to almost... um, Uh, accept as doctrine that some of these gifts or these gifts that Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 were gifts that were exercised, made manifest by the Spirit in the early Christian community. But then after the Scriptures, the New Testament was complete, uh, there was no longer need for these gifts, and they faded away. Uh, I grew up in a church that basically believed that Uh, until back in the 1970s, they were confronted uh, by good Christian people who manifested the gifts. 
let me say a little bit more history about what's gotten us to this point. Even though uh, these gifts have existed to some degree, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, throughout the history of the Christian church, there have been long periods when um, they, they were not predominant. What started happening uh, in the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries was this. Uh, the Wesleyan revival, particularly, the Methodist-type people particularly, uh, from our inception talked about something, some act of God, some move of the Spirit in individual lives post-conversion, post-coming to Christ, post giving your sins to Jesus Christ and being forgiven and cleansed of your sins. Uh, so with Wesley and the heirs of Wesley, we find a recovering of, uh, if you want to say it this way, a, a, a recovering of some sort of second act of grace in um, Christian lives, something post-conversion. Uh, people begin to realize they, they obviously would not have received that back into the life of the church if they had not realized that there, were, there was warrant for this in the New Testament. Uh, but so, so with the Wesleyan revival, and people like the Wesleyan revival, and there have been groups like that throughout the history of the church, uh, they made room for a, a special second act of grace, um, and they begin to make room for a greater anticipation for what the Holy Spirit could do, particularly in that second act of grace. Uh, whatever God does in our life is, is the work of the Holy Spirit. But um, this second act of grace sometimes uh, came to be termed as fullness of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, being immersed in the Holy Spirit in the early days of Methodism. We referred to it as entire sanctification. Just some subsequent moment to uh, conversion when God would do a, a second mighty act in our lives. Early on in Methodism, this second mighty act was seen uh, primarily for the purposes of consecration, dedication, uh, being equipped by the Spirit, to be emboldened by the Spirit uh, for the sake of uh, Christian witness in this world. Um, that was what come to be called the holiness movement. The holiness movement, which came out of Methodism, was part of Methodism, taught that there could be a second act of the Spirit in our lives that could make us uh, uh, more exceptionally holy in the New Testament sense of holy to do the work that God was calling us to do. So with the birth uh, and the growth of the Western Revival, Methodist-type people, this second act of grace came to be a greater reality in the body of Christ. By the end of the 1800s, the end of the 19th century, uh, the holiness movement, people seeking a second act of grace, a baptism in the Holy Spirit. That language was being used throughout the body of Christ. Uh, everyone didn't mean exactly the same thing with it or using that phrase, but it came to be used. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was fairly prevalent among Protestants in the late 1800s. Uh, then we have, uh, beginning in the early 1900s, first decade of the 1900s, um, really beginning on the eve of January the 1st, 1900, at a Bible school, Topeka Bible School in Kansas, there was a preacher named Charles Parham 
who uh, led a revival movement there um, right around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, and as part of that revival movement, there was a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that baptism in the Holy Spirit, was accompanied with the gift of speaking in tongues, something that we see in the book of Acts, something of which Paul speaks about in this sec- section of 1 Corinthians we're going to be speaking about. So with um, uh, Charles Parham, the T- Topeka Bible College, Bible School, uh, then uh, in, in Los Angeles, uh, in the early, first decade of, that 20th, of the 20th century, there was the Azusa Street Revival that happened in Los Angeles. Interestingly enough, the building that was used for the Azusa Street uh, meetings initially was an abandoned uh, Methodist church. Uh, I think that in some ways is God reminding us that these movements are connected. But out of the Azusa Street Revival, there was a, a mighty move of the Holy Spirit, people being baptized in the Spirit, and people speaking in tongues or glossolalia. We'll have a lot of opportunity to talk about what that is when we get into uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 particularly. Um, but that, that was the birth at the, in the first decade of the 20th century of the Pentecostal movement. Uh, the Pentecostal movement birthed some Pentecostal denominations. Most, a lot of them came out of uh, the Methodist churches. Um, there was one Pentecostal denomination birthed that was a little bit more Calvinist than what came out of the Methodist churches, uh, what became the Assemblies of God. But you had that Pentecostal movement began in the first decade of the 20th century. It's continued to grow. It's continued to spread worldwide. Um, it will not be that far in the future when the majority of Christians in the world, uh, particularly Protestants, we may be there now where the majority of Protestants in the world and other countries outside the United States are of a Pentecostal persuasion who believe in the operation of the gifts of the Spirit because of the baptism of the Spirit. Uh, That's the Pentecostal movement. We know of Pentecostal independent churches, Pentecostal denominations. But let me tell you what started happening in the 1950s, uh, 1960s. Uh, We like to date it to Palm Sunday, uh, and this is a generalization of stuff going on before this, but on Palm Sunday in 1960, uh, the Reverend Dennis Bennett, who was a rector of St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, California, a very um, established Episcopal church there of, of over 2,500 members. Um, Dennis Bennett, the rector, the pastor of that church, uh, from the pulpit of that church on Palm Sunday, uh, happened to say to his congregation he had been baptized in the Spirit. And that baptism in the Spirit was accompanied with the uh, gift of speaking in tongues. Uh, He ended up having to leave St. Mark's, went to St. Luke's Episcopal Church up in Seattle, and had a remarkable ministry at St. Luke's Episcopal Church up in Seattle. But um, particularly Dennis Bennett in that period in the early 1960s became known as, as the birth of the charismatic renewal movement. Uh, really, the only, there, there's some, diff, some other differences, but the primary difference between Pentecostal and Charismatic is this. Pentecostal, uh, began, the Pentecostal movement was a little earlier in the 20th century. It birthed independent churches and new denominations primarily. The Charismatic Renewal Movement 
was a movement of Pentecostalism um, within mainline churches. Uh, all the mainline churches uh, began to have expressions of, of Pentecostalism within those mainline churches. Uh, remember, Dennis Bennett was Episcopalian uh, when he brought the charismatic renewal movement to his congregation. Uh, so by the end of the 1960s, you have charismatic Luthers, charismatic Presbyterians, charismatic Methodists, charismatic Roman Catholics. Uh, the largest group of uh, charismatics in the world belong to the Roman Catholic Church because that's the largest church in the world. But all these um, old-line denominations, old-line traditions, was being, they were being influenced by Pentecostalism. And you had uh, established churches, people in established churches, talking about the baptism of the Spirit and the fullness of the Spirit and the operation of uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, of which Paul will speak in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, are in operation today. Uh, then a little bit later, just to bring you a little bit more up to date, and these are all generalizations, categories are just as uh, significant and helpful as categories can be. Uh, there's always exceptions, but in the 19, um, uh, late 70s, 1980s, into the 1990s, some people begin to perceive what C. Peter Wagner called, a uh, great, great missiologist, what C. Peter Wagner called a third wave of the Holy Spirit. And the third wave of the Holy Spirit was just everybody throughout the body of Christ uh, not paying attention to labels like Pentecostal or charismatic, but they were acting, they were embracing um, parts of Christian tradition that were brought back to us through the Pentecostal charismatic uh, tradition or renewal movements. All of a sudden, you got Presbyterians having uh, healing services, uh, United Methodists having healing services. Um, you've, you've, you've got uh, praise choruses. Uh, making its what making their way into contempt into into old line churches, usually in what's called contemporary worship. The 1989, I believe, was the newest hymnal in the United Methodist Church. For instance, has um, uh, the Spirit Song, which was written by John Wimber, a uh, a great leader in the Charismatic Renewal movement. Uh, you, you see songs like that that made their way into established hymnals like the United Methodist Hymnal. So the third wave is sort of um, people acting in ways that are uh, Pentecostal charismatic, and they don't even understand that it's not something people might have been doing teeny prevalence 200 years ago. Um, asking for healing, praying for healing, laying on of hands, um, seeking present experiential manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And as soon as I say it that way, uh, you see again the connection with the earliest days of Methodism. Uh, the revival of Methodism began when John Wesley, after he had been a priest in the Church of England for over a decade, had been a, in many ways a faithful Christian, felt his heart strangely warmed there at Aldersgate Street in that Bible study, and his life was changed and the Methodist Renewal Movement began. So um, that's a quick history of the last uh, really more than a couple hundred years, if you take it back to Wesley's Aldersgate experience. Wesley made room, um, as an aside, Wesley made room for present manifestations of the Holy Spirit that, that had not be, been seen uh, to any large extent in, in Christian history for years, the, 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 
the centuries leading up to John Wesley. He made room for them. He didn't greatly emphasize them. Uh, he didn't prevent them when, when uh, uh, what some people would have termed bizarre manifestations of the Spirit showed up in corporate worship or in private life. Um, he, he didn't believe that theologically or doctrinally that those things died away from the life of the church because it was God's will or something about the stages of God's revelation. But he, he seemed to imply that he believed some of uh, the book of Acts was not being carried out in his John Wesley's day simply because of the weakness of the church, uh, the lack of spiritual fervor and zeal and vitality. So in, in several ways, Wesley made room for greater work of the Holy Spirit uh, and made greater room for uh, a second great act of the Holy Spirit in believers' lives. And all of that paved the way for the rise of the holiness and the Pentecostal and then the charismatic renewal movement. So uh, all of that simply to say we're at a period of history where these three chapters have uh, become very, very important and significant. Uh, they've been taught more probably in the last hundred years than... Um, uh, they've been taught probably in much of their our history before that, other than chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, the great love chapter, which of course occurs in the middle of chapters 12 and 14. So you'll, you'll notice the context of that great love chapter that gets read at so many weddings. Uh, you'll, you'll hear the context because that does come here in Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts. So let's uh, make our way toward the text, see how far we can get today. Evidently, these spiritual gifts were operating um, in wondrous ways in the church in Corinth. But, and you won't be surprised by this because you've read through 11 chapters now, 1 Corinthians, they in Corinth were allowing these gifts to bring division. Uh, they were allowing um, these gifts to create competition between each other. Uh, they, were viewing some, they were viewing some gifts as, as better than other gifts. They began to focus on some of the more uh, flashy gifts or spectacular gifts, uh, like speaking in tongues or um, something perhaps like uh, uh, miracles of healing. Um, and, and, and these wonderful gifts, they're gifts, that's what they're called, uh, charismata, from which we get the word charismatic. These are wonderful charismata that God has given to the church, but of course, we, we can manage to mess just about anything up, and that's what they were doing in Corinth. Uh, these gifts that were being uh, peppered throughout the body for the edification of the whole were becoming means of personal pride and personal boasting. And that's what's eliciting Paul's remarks here. So we're going to look at the first 11 verses. I won't go into complete depth with these first 11 verses uh, because there's particularly a section here in these first 11 verses of chapter 12 where Paul is going to talk about nine specific gifts. And I want us to have plenty of time to talk about these specific gifts. But we'll get the whole, and we'll do that next week, but we'll get the whole context today. So chapter 12, verse 1, Paul makes it clear here in 1 Corinthians that he's, he's, he's picking up a new topic. He says in verse 1 of chapter 12, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. 
So here he's moving to this new topic concerning spiritual gifts. Evidently, uh, they had sent word to him asking uh, some questions about spiritual gifts. And, um, or he just heard that they were abusing the manifestation and the practices of the spiritual gifts in the body. Uh, the word here um, that's translated in my edition in front of me by two words, spiritual gifts, is really just one Greek word, um, pneumatica, pneumatica, uh, one Greek word, uh, and that's why it really literally just means now concerning spiritualities. Uh, so your English translation helps you out usually and um, provides a noun. Uh, my translation, and most do this, I think almost all do this, uh, translate it now concerning spiritual gifts. But you'll probably see uh, a note in your in your Bible in your translation that says this 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 phrase spiritual gifts could be translated spiritual people uh, now concerning the operations of uh, these spiritual gifts in these people Paul may be implying both so he's he's saying now concerning these spiritual gifts that are in operation among spiritual people I do not want you to be uninformed and we're grateful Paul is going to inform them. For three chapters about what these gifts are and how they should uh, be oper- in operation in the body. Verse 2, you know that when you are pagans, Gentiles, um, non-Jews, non-Christians, when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Uh, so the Greco-Roman world is filled with gods They really were false gods. They were mute gods who couldn't speak. You see, already Paul is making uh, his way to verbal gifts, Uh, the issue of verbal communication. That's going to be uh, prevalent in this chapter. He's talking about you were led astray to these mute idols. Uh, And Paul's already told you that these mute false idols... Uh, the multiplicity of gods in the Greco-Roman world, when they showed power, and they did, when they showed power, Paul makes it clear, has made it clear in First Corinthians, uh, it was demons that were exercising that power in the false gods. There are no other gods, but there are demons that can delude uh, people. Verse 3, Paul says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God um, ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What he's saying here, because this, this is a very charismatic community, spiritual gifts operating, the Spirit possessing people. And by the way, when the Spirit possesses a Christian, uh, the, Spirit, the, the Christian has complete control of his will and, and how that gift operates. But... Uh, but sometimes in the Greco-Roman world, when people were possessed by the demons that appeared to be acting uh, as other gods, sometimes they didn't appear to be in control of what they were doing. So Paul is beginning to differentiate between uh, how the spirit will operate in life of a Christian and how other spirits can operate in other people's lives. Uh, he's saying, for instance, um, as you um, get possessed by the spirit of God, uh, as uh, you uh, evidence verbal gifts, uh, you don't have to worry about being led, perhaps in tongues, to say something blasphemous, such as Jesus is accursed. Um, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the true God, would never 
lead you to do that. The spirit of truth of the true God will empower you and edify you to be able to make that earliest of all Christian confessions. He references here, Jesus is Lord. So um, part of what Paul's saying here is an introduction to what he's going to say about gifts is uh, we have control of our wills um, and the spirit of God uh, never overrides that control. It operates with our wills. So uh, there's a self-conscious operation of the gifts uh, when it's God doing it. And the other thing here, uh, the reason he's bringing up this issue about uh, the Spirit will lead you to profess Jesus as Lord is we need to understand real quickly, and the people in Corinth need to understand quickly, um, that these gifts are going to be Christ-centered. They're not going to be something to build up a person or a human being or a cause. They're going to be Christ-centered. So Paul is saying here at the beginning of chapter 12 that um, when the Holy Spirit operates in our lives and gifts us for, for, for the edification of the body, uh, this, this operation of the Spirit will be something that we'll have a self-conscious control of, and these operations of the Spirit will be Christ-centered. So, now let's look at the next paragraph where he lists nine specific gifts. This is what we'll get into next week. Uh, this is not an exhaustive list. Uh, these are not the only gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, there will be nine listed here by Paul. You'll see a list in Romans 12. You'll see a list in Ephesians 4. You'll see a list in 1 Peter 4. And so with these four lists of gifts of the Spirit, and gifts and fruit are different, uh, in Galatians 5.22, you see Paul uh, listing the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit and gifts are different. Um, he's talking about gifts here. Uh, in, in these other passages I just gave you, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, he's talking about gifts. He gives you lists, and of these four lists of gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to believers, none of these four li lists are identical. Uh, some lists have gifts, other lists don't mention. Some lists are longer than others. That's led most of us to say what we're looking at here is none of these lists are exhaustive. And if you put all four lists together, there's overlap in these lists, but if you put all four lists together, uh, that's still not exhaustive. There's probably, I know there are gifts of the Spirit um, that are beyond the ones listed here uh, because the the Holy Spirit is, is, is God. God has total creativity and total freedom. So uh, here, here in this paragraph, verses 4 through 11, uh, is what we'll be getting into next week where we'll begin to identify the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, let, let me read it, though, so you, you can get, it, get the context. Verse 4, uh, now that Paul has told you Christians have, uh, can control the gifts of the Spirit in their life through the will and gifts of the Holy Spirit always Christ-centered, um, you know it when the, the Spirit is operating in your life, if it is Christ-centered. So verse 4, Paul says, Now there are varieties of gifts. The word there is charismaton, uh, from which we get the word charismatic. Uh, charisma means gift. Charismata or charismata are gifts. Now I know our, our secular culture uses the word charisma just to mean uh, a lot of personality. But in the New Testament, charisma means something very specific. It's one of these gifts. Uh, so he uses the word charismaton here. So there are varieties of gifts. 
but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God. So there's many, many gifts flowing from this single fountain. That's how John Wesley said it. Uh, but I want you to notice something here. Uh, here in verses 4 and 5, you have a reference to Spirit, Lord, and God. So this is another one of those places in the New Testament where uh, the, the concept, the doctrine of the Trinity is, is exhibited. The word Trinity is never used in the New Testament, but you see that concept of the Trinity um, being exhibited in the New Testament. So uh, the Trinity is involved in the giving of these gifts, but they all come from that single fountain. Uh, look at verse 7. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each one. All of us have at least one special gift. And again, we're not talking about heightened abilities that we have by nature and by birth and by heritage or by training. These are gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit. Every one of us, Paul promises us right here, every one of us has been given at least one for the, for the sake of the body. Uh, what is yours? Uh, you, you need to discover uh, how you have been given special gifts from God uh, because to be obedient to God means you use those gifts for the sake of the body. So he says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then here comes a list of gifts. We'll get into this next week. Verse 8, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, the word wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge, the word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, and we'll talk about how that faith differs from just normal faith in the life of Christian. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, working of miracles. We'll talk about what that is and how that is different from healing uh, next week. To another, prophecy. Prophecy in the New Testament is not telling the future. That could be part of it to a small extent. But prophecy in the New Testament is speaking the mind of God. Paul is really big on prophecy. You'll see uh, particularly in chapter 14. But he says here, to, to another the work of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits or, or be able to discern spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. Uh, if you go and count, there's nine gifts listed there. That's the list that Paul gives right here in, in this part of 1 Corinthians. Then in verse 11, he says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So there's various streams flowing from the one fountain. God is the one who gives these gifts. A, a, a Bible teacher that had a lot of influence on me at one point in my life, or still does, is Derek Prince. And I'll, I'll um, and if you know Derek Prince, he's been uh, deceased now for many years, but some of you may know Derek Prince. You may have been influenced by Derek Prince, so you'll hear some of Derek Prince coming out of me uh, uh, occasionally. Um, I try to give him credit when, when, when I remember to give him credit. One of the illustrations he used in his ministry to di differentiate between the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit is he would use the illustration of a fruit tree and a Christmas tree. Now, a fruit tree, and think about fruits of the Spirit, you know, love, peace, patience, joy, kindness, you know the list, Galatians 5.22. Uh, 
the fruit from a fruit tree has to has to bud and grow, and it's natural. If you're an apple tree, you're going to produce apples. Uh, if you have the Spirit of Christ in you, you're going to produce some spirit. Uh, so that's the fruit of the Spirit. But when he talks about, when the Bible talks about gifts of the Spirit, he says, think about a Christmas tree. The gifts just show up under the Christmas tree. They're put there, and they can just be received, taken. Um, that's the gifts of the Spirit. Gifts of the Spirit are special gifts from God, peppered throughout the body of Christ, uh, given to believers for the edification, uh, the upbuilding of the body. Uh, those gifts just have to be received. So Paul has those two categories, the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. One of the ways I think about the church in Corinth is they had the they very much had the gifts of the Spirit without the fruit of the Spirit. That's why in the middle of this discussion on the gifts of the Spirit, you're going to find chapter 13 where he talks about the preeminent fruit of the Spirit, love. If you operate the gifts without the fruit of the Spirit, it will lead you to be boastful, divisive, self-serving, You'll want to be flashy. It'll be more for edifying yourself than edifying the body of Christ. So uh, we're going to be talking about the gifts of the Spirit in this section. That's different from the fruit of the Spirit. So we'll return to this list next week and talk about what each one of these gifts are. God bless you.